Father, we do ask for your blessing upon us and for the understanding of your most marvelous saving word. We do pray, O Lord, as we look at Psalm 10, that, Lord, these questions that David asked would certainly penetrate our hearts, but, Lord, that we would, we would submit ourselves, Lord, to the answer of these questions, Lord, these inspired questions. Lord, help us to address the grievances and the complaints we have, Lord, in our circumstances, in our lives, like David did in his. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. Well, beloved, our psalm is Psalm 10. Psalm 10, and I'm going to read the whole psalm, even though we're only going to focus on just those first couple of verses. So hear now the word of God. Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked relentlessly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked one boasts about his own cravings, and the one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord. In all his scheming, the wicked arrogantly thinks there's no accountability since God does not exist. His ways are always secure. Your lofty judgments are beyond his sight. He scoffs at all his adversaries. He says to himself, I will never be moved from generation to generation without calamity. Cursing, deceit, and violence fill his mouth. Trouble and malice are under his tongue. He waits in ambush near the villages. He kills the innocent in secret places. His eyes are on the lookout for the helpless. He lurks in secret like a lion in a thicket. He lurks in order to seize the afflicted. He seizes the afflicted and drags him in his net. He crouches and bends down. The helpless fall because of his strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. Rise up, O Lord. Lift up your hand. and Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked despised God? He says to himself, you will not demand an account. But you yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your hands and the helpless entrust himself to you. You are a helper to the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil person. Call his wickedness into account until nothing remains of it. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully, doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed so that men of the earth may terrify them no more. Thus ends the reading of God's word. A beloved Psalm 10 is no doubt a heavy psalm, as you just heard. It's a psalm of complaint. The psalmist is complaining. The psalmist is addressing not just the oppression that he feels, the affliction that he feels, but 
He's observing oppression and affliction. It's something that's far beyond his own personal experience. He sees what looks to him all around him is nothing but the thriving and the prosperity of fools, mockers, those who truly despise God and hate his ways. And the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pins this psalm, and it's not the only one like it. There are others that addresses what we would call human depravity or the human condition, the fallen human condition. This is what, this is what sin looks like. If, if men are left to themselves and women, if we are left to ourselves without God's grace, without his mercy, without his compassions, this is what we become. We become violent. We become oppressors. We become unloving. We become hateful, bitter, vengeant. Um, we are seeking, uh, we would seek to oppose those who are, are, to afflict those who are weaker than us, as the psalmist says. They look for those that they can dominate. And this is the story of fallen mankind, isn't it? Cain took advantage of Abel. Cain, obviously, under the right circumstances, in the right condition, took the life of his brother. We see um, Cain's descendants doing the same thing, Lamech. What do we see him doing? We see him becoming offended because somebody said something he didn't like and he strikes him down, he kills him. Hardly justifying the death by offensive words, right? Offensive words are not something to kill someone over. And yet, he exaggerates the offense and takes it upon himself to overcome and overpower another. What do we see in Genesis 6? We see the world becoming godless or without God. And what I mean by that is what Jesus says in Matthew 24. He says it'll be like the days of Noah. People will be eating and celebrating and marrying and doing life, but that life that they do is separate from God. They have taken God out of it. Now, does it mean they were not pagans? No, it didn't mean they didn't devise their own false gods. It just means they took the true and living God away. They, they have nothing to do with him. They despise him. And, and that's what despising God looks like. It's forgetting him. It's ignoring him. It's putting him off. It's, it's common neglect. Common neglect can be easily defined, and it is biblically, as despising God. You don't remember him. You don't choose to remember him. You don't want to. He's just not a part of your routine daily. The psalmist sees this. He looks around, and it really does, if you read the psalm, I mean, it describes a very depressing situation. And you can't help but think about our own current situation. 
I don't know what each of you are going through. I don't know what you are dealing with, whether it be, you know, um, circumstances of your own making that you're having to, you know, dredge through, if you will. It's, and it's not fun. It's certainly um, hard and difficult because you've made a lot of bad decisions. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe there are those that don't like you because of your testimony of Christ. Maybe there are those that don't care for you because you're too strong in your Christian convictions. Maybe that's the case. Maybe you're passed over for a job advancement, or maybe you're just not seen as someone that is favorable to be on some team to accomplish some work, whatever the case may be. There's injustice done. And that injustice flows out of your testimony, out of your willingness to be what? A salt and light to the world. There are other Psalms, as I stated earlier, that address man's dreadful condition apart from God. One of them, a Psalm very close by is Psalm 14. Let's look at that one and just, again, these Psalm, uh, Psalm 10 and others help us. But notice Psalm 14 and the reason I want you to look at this Psalm because it does have, a, you know, the verse in there that you'll catch immediately in that a fool in his heart says that God does not exist. There is no God. That's verse one. The fool says in his heart, God does not exist. They are corrupt. Their actions are revolting. There is no one who does good. Wow. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away, all alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. You see Paul quoting this in Romans 3. Will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on the Lord. And then they will be filled with terror for God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion, from the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. It's just one Psalm. Psalm 36, Psalm 55, Psalm 59 are all Psalms similar to these. They highlight human depravity. They highlight the depth and strength of human wickedness. Dark hearts, sinful hearts, hearts that certainly when you, when you even in a common grace situation, in what we see in cultures, even Christian cultures are cultures that once were very, very Christian, now even in a nominal Christian testimony, if you will, our profession, maybe much of it is even tradition, that outward grace that is the remnant of that previous culture keeps at bay to some extent the devil. It keeps at bay to some extent human depravity because these things act as buffers and barriers to great human wickedness. But what happens when those things are gone? What happens when there's rank atheism? What happens when there are even no 
common grace barriers. What fills the void? The void doesn't remain empty. It fills up itself with something. And of course, when all else is rejected, common sense, grace, common grace, and of course, we're highlighting that special grace that God comes that we're going to talk about in a minute. But nevertheless, beloved, when, when all of these other things are just given up, what fills the void is darkness and demonic rank, pride and arrogance and treachery over others. And that's what we see in cultures without God. That's what we find when cultures give up God, when they give up even Christian traditions, they, they become just cesspools of immorality. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. And that's one of the things that's so dangerous about communism or socialism or these political theories and um, ideologies that seek, first of all, to get rid of Christianity. Why? Because Christianity is not compatible with them. Communism is a ideology that flows out of atheism. And Christianity, at least the Christianity that we profess to believe, is cannot cohabitate with communism. So what did what have common communist countries done to silence the Christianity? Persecuted them, tormented them, afflicted them imprisoned them, murdered them, any number of ways in order to silence them. The psalmist teaches us, though, that they can never silence prayer because what's important for us here is that the psalmist is crying out. He is, he is taking his complaint to God. And sometimes that's all you have. You have no one else to complain to. There's no one else to, that will listen to you. You're all alone in one sense. You cry out to God. God is there for you. God is with you. And, and that's what David helps us with the most is that God is there. Notice in verse one, and this is really where we'll spend our time. Uh, verse one, the question that David raises to God. Lord, why do you stand so far off? Why do you hide in times of trouble? I read that, and of course I've read this psalm dozens of times in my reading of scripture. But as you know, and as you experience, there are times when you read certain passages of scripture, you read certain Psalms or texts that they seem to jump out at you. They seem to take on a, 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 a visible, they're visible. They're, you'd be like, wow, look at this question. That you've, that you've I mean, David has plenty of friends. He's a king. He has a prophet, if not prophets, at his disposal. He doesn't lack companionship. 
He has plenty of people that he could summon into his presence that would not only listen to him, but would even write it down for him. They would even inscribe it on stone if he so commanded them to do so, that they would put his thoughts in writing if he so commanded. And yet, what is David doing? David is crying out to God in prayer and he begins this prayer, if you will, by asking God, where are you? Now, if you were to ask a child, where is God? They would, uh, uh, trained would say, God is everywhere. And yes, God is everywhere. But what is David actually talking about here? Well, David is talking about an aspect of a, a believer's life that we can all, I'm sure, relate to. And that is there are moments, there are circumstances where the believer feels alone. I have no one. Even when there's people so close to them. I feel alone. There's no one else I can even go to that would listen to me, to my moans, to my groans, to these complaints. And so he takes them to the Lord and he opens this up by saying, Lord, where are you? Why are you so far away from me? I want you to think about who's saying it, what he's saying, and what he means by it, really. So we've got a man after God's own heart that God, God's chosen, he was chosen to be a type of Christ in the Old Testament as a king and as a prophet. And yet, even David in his humanity, in his own struggle with his own sins and his own circumstances, has moments where he wonders where God is. Now, that should give all of us comfort. Now, I, I don't, I mean, that is, it's not comforting to know that God's not there. You know, it's not that God's not there. It's just that we don't, we're not experiencing him as we once did. God is everywhere. He's never not everywhere. And God has not changed his mind concerning the righteous, concerning his children. God doesn't wake up on one side of the bed and love you and then go to his bed and get up the next day and goes, I don't love you or I love you much less. God's not like that. God doesn't waffle. He doesn't waver in those types of emotions. He's not like we are. You know, when you wake up in the morning and you walk and you haven't had that first cup of coffee and somebody speaks to you and good morning and you're like, I got to get my cup of coffee in the morning. Well, that's, I mean, again, now God doesn't do that. He doesn't act like we do. It's, I think it is interesting though, and this is one of several Psalms that, that, declare this or ask this, Lord, where are you? 
Psalm 22 in verse 1, Psalm 13 in verse 1, Psalm 35 in verse 22. All of these psalms address where's God? Where is he in this human experience I'm having? Why do I feel alone in these circumstances? You know, loneliness is a big deal today. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we're so connected. We've never been more connected. I mean, you can get Pastor Stanfield. I mean, look, this thing's in my back pocket. Text, call, email, uh, I don't know what, there's, in, there's all kinds of different ways to reach out to people. I mean, we're never, we've never been more connected and yet people have never been more alone in our culture and society. See, simple texting a message or even talking on the phone or, or sending Facebook posts or any number of, so, social media really isn't bringing people together in a human experience, is it? I mean, we, we're conversing more than we ever have and yet we're dumber than we've ever been and we're less capable of interacting in person than we ever have been. And I mean this, in my own family, we all sit around the room. Everybody's got their phones out. We're all talking on the phone, but we're not talking to one another. Because we feel like we need to reach out. We're lonely. We need to, we can't, it, we all, we're lonely and we can't go anywhere without our phones. David He knows God is everywhere. His theology is not the problem. Your theology is not the problem. You know God is everywhere. You've been taught this. You, you've read enough of the Bible. You believe these things. You, you know God is real. That's not your problem. You know God is everywhere. That's not your problem. But what is the problem? The problem is, is when we begin to focus our attention on the circumstances around us, we forget that God is actively working even in these circumstances to do something very good in our lives. I need to say that again. That when we look around and we witness these, the tyranny we witness the oppression, the affliction. It's like we lay the theology aside and we begin focusing upon the circumstance as if God somehow is not using that in the life of his people, in the life of his church, in the life of the righteous. Because the righteous are being afflicted here. The, the righteous are being oppressed. They're being overcome. They're being overpowered. They, they lack the strength to protect themselves. And David is not that guy. He's not a weakling. I mean, he's a warrior, a general. He's not a, he's not a pushover. And yet even the king's own heart feels empty and alone. And it could be because the king in one sense is experiencing what he sees going on around him and that he 
He's lamenting the condition of the people, which leaders do that. And why do you think it's newsworthy when the country is at war or when there's a, a bombing or when there's some devastation, I think like, you know, a fire breaks out and burns down a whole city and, and the president goes on vacation. Why is that newsworthy? Because leaders who are fathers don't do that. Leaders who are fathers of the nation typically will take on the emotion and the oppression that's going on around him. And David seems to be doing this. I'm not concerned about David being a pushover. David was a giant killer. He could take care of himself. But what David could not do is shepherd all of Israel the way God can shepherd Israel and deal with their sins, and deal with their weaknesses, and deal with their loneliness, and deal with their waywardness, and just do the things that what? Uh, that God does spiritually in his people. David couldn't do that. And when we take our eyes off of that, that God, the theology, and the doctrine that we know, and then we lose sight of really what's going on. And we give it an interpretation that's very hard to live with and hard to understand. And, and David begins there and he says, Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Now, let's talk about this. We're going to, I think I've pretty much laid the groundwork. So let's talk about God's providence. Now, what is God's providence? Well, God's providence is, is the management of his creation in a nutshell. God is, is the exercise of God's power in the management of his creation. Okay. Uh, we would say the, all of the physical world and even the unseen world, the unseen dimensions. God also manages the unseen world. Everything that's created, both seen and unseen, are under God's sovereign management. And this is the very doctrine, this is the foundational doctrine that David seems to be wrestling with. Lord, where are you? Things are taking place. Things are happening that seem to be contrary to your promises, to your love, to your mercy. Help me understand. Listen, let's not be too hard on David. Let's not be too hard on David. John the Baptist baptized Jesus. And yet, when thrown in prison, just on the cusp of losing his life, what did he do? He sends his disciples to Jesus and says, are you the one? Think about that. John the Baptist identified Jesus when he walked up on that riverbank. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. 
And when Jesus asked to be baptized, what did John do? John said, I am unworthy to baptize you. In fact, I'm so unworthy, I should not even shackle your sandals together. What is John, what's my point? My point is John is identifying who Jesus was, who who he was. When he walked up, he knows who he is. And yet, beloved, there was a moment in John's life that he doubted. Maybe he's not the one. Why? I'm sitting in prison. Look at my circumstances. This is not the way that I envisioned it. This is not how I've, this is not how I saw my life ending in a jail cell. <sighs> About to be beheaded at the request of a very immoral daughter. And what, what did his heart do? His heart fainted under the circumstance. His heart gave way to the, to the power and the difficulty of the circumstance, of the moment, so much so that he, I mean, so much so that he sends his disciples, go ask him if there's another coming. Because this just doesn't seem right. Now, beloved, don't take, don't be too hard on David. But don't be too hard on John either. Because we too do the same thing. We too do the very same things. I mean, it can be a very hard, challenging life circumstance and we doubt God's blessing. We doubt God's promises. We doubt God's favor. We're doubting his presence. And we probably have done it more than we're willing to admit. More than once, I would say. I know I have. And yet I'm always convicted and I'm always reminded. I always have to go back. And it's similar to what David does here. He does call upon God in verse 12. Rise up, Lord. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. I mean, there is a summons, if you will, of that personal spiritual fortitude. Lord, rise up. I mean, not just rise up in this place, but rise up with even my own heart. In verse 16 through 18, Lord is king forever. There's a reminder we do have to bring to ourselves scripture. We have to bring to ourselves the memory of scripture. And we talk about the Lord's sovereignty. We talk about his kingship. We talk about how the nations are nothing compared to him. That his desire is for the humble. That he is the one that gives strength to the weary. That he is the one that listens carefully that he cares about justice, he cares about the oppressed, he cares about the fatherless, and he will be a terror to the tyrants. But we don't see it now. It's the same thing as, the, I think we talked about David like in Asaph, right? He, he looks and he sees the prosperity of the wicked and it causes him to stumble. How can they go about their lives with such ease, with such carelessness? And it looks like everything goes their way. And and what's so interesting about that psalm, 
73 is where does the psalmist come to his senses? In the worship of God, in the courts of the Lord, under the the ministry of the word of God. He says, and I came to my senses and I was reminded. How was he reminded? He was reminded through the reading of scripture. He was reminded through the prophetic announcement of God's word. He was reminded of the promises. He was reminded that God cares. He was reminded that God listens. And he says, you know, I came to my senses. I've learned these things and I'm being reminded of these things. And here's what I know. I know that they're in is a dreadful one. Even if they make it through this life, easy peasy. The transition to the next one is not so easy. You know, there was an old old say old uh, saying: a man may. He may fool these earthly courts. He won't fool the divine court. And, and, and in one sense, there was a willingness to say, listen, you, you will go and you will stand before the Lord as your judge, and he's going to judge you. You you surpassed this court, but there's another court that you're going to. When we talk about God's providence, beloved, we're talking about his sovereign management of all of his creation, especially the righteous, especially the righteous. Because scripture tells us in Romans 8, you know the passage, Romans 8 and 28, that God is busy working out those things for the benefit of his elect of believers, those who put their faith in Christ, those who trust in him, those who have repented of their sins, those who, who seek him, love him, pray, all of these things that, are, that, are, that come with believing and trusting in, in Christ. God says he's orchestrating, managing, working all of these things out for their good. That is you, beloved, The paragraph in the Westminster Confession of Faith that I want to introduce you to that you know, I'm sure, but that I've used, I use all the time. I use it in my own life and I use it in counseling often. And the paragraph goes like this. It's chapter five, paragraph five. It says, the most wise, righteous and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close, constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry or various other just and holy ends, meaning that there are a variety of reasons God may hide himself from you. But these are some of the things we do know that oftentimes, that word oftentimes, 
God hides himself from you because of sin. Now, it may not be because the sin has broken out. It doesn't mean that sin has broken out into action. It doesn't have to be that. Sometimes it's just the lingering and longing for it. Now, we have to be careful because we are subject to judge God harshly. And that's why the confession adds these attributes. Most wise, most righteous, and most gracious. Meaning that when we talk about God's management and providence over the righteous, we need to think of it in these terms. We need to think of it in light of these attributes. He's most wise. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom is seeing the whole and the parts, how they work together, knowing what to do, when to do it, and how to do it is wisdom. It takes wisdom to orchestrate an event, to make sure all the smaller parts do not take away or somehow override the larger part. And God is most wise. He knows how the small things are to work with the larger things and how the larger things work with the ultimate things. And he works all of these things out in a wise fashion. And you have to think about this. You know, when you talk about some people, you ladies or some of you men, you say, hey, oh, so-and-so, you want to talk to him, he's a wise fellow. He gives great advice. He knows how to, you could take a circumstance to him and he says, well, I think this, and I think these are the steps you ought to take in this circumstance. Oh, that's wise. Well, God is like that. He's most wise in that he knows how all the little parts fit and form together. He knows how to fashion them together in your life. He knows how to take every possible situation and challenge, even, even as it says, temptation, and use it for the greater picture and the greater good of your spiritual walk in Christ. Because sometimes, as I said, those, these sins haven't busted out yet. They're still being incubated, okay? But they're still sin. And they're still sin because in some ways we long for them. We desire them and they are off limits. They are wrong to desire. They are unrighteous things. And so God says, you know what? Let me teach my servant that these sins are not safe. Now I'm going to give you a picture and it's probably not going to be the best one. But it's like having this pet tiger. He's going to let you pet him. He's going to be cuddly. There are going to be times when that tiger just wants to rub up against you. But when that tiger wants to be a tiger, you're in danger. And that's what we do with sin. We think there are benign sins. We think there are sins that are not dangerous. All sins are dangerous. 
How many sins did it take for Adam and Eve to get kicked out of the garden and break the covenant of works? One. These sins are not safe. These sins are not good. There's, there's no good sin. And sometimes God will withdraw himself in order for us to learn that the secrets of our hearts need to be managed and dealt with by his spirit and word. We need to be washed. We need to be cleansed. They need to be mortified. In fact, look, look, look at Romans 8. I'm sure some of you, if not all of you, are familiar with John Owen, the wordy Puritan. And I say wordy because if you haven't read him, you don't know what I'm talking about. But if you've read him, you know what I'm talking about. Well, he wrote one of his famous uh, treaties and articles is the mortification of sin. And his famous, you know, mantra was, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That was the whole emphasis. And of course, it's an exposition of Romans 8. Now, he, and of course, again, let's, let's begin to look at this in Romans chapter 8. Look at verse, let's see, let's look at verse 1. It says, there's no, therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. Because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his Son in flesh like ours under sin's dominion and as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those whose lives are according to the flesh think about things of the flesh. But those whose lives are according to the spirit about the things of the spirit. For the mindset of the flesh is death. But the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's law. For it is unable to do so. Those whose lives are in the flesh are unable to please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, since the spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through the, his spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All those, all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. Now, I'm just going to stop there. And I think you can see the point that sometimes that God may draw himself, that God may hide himself from you. Because there are times when sins are but in the, in the, in, in the, 
thought stages and just the uh, heart stages that God would allow these sins to teach you how dangerous they are, how deadly they are, so that you would what? Be drawn to Christ even more so. All along the way. And see, beloved, this happens multiple times in our lives. Multiple times, many times, all throughout our history, our, our personal history, we are what? Learning these things time and time again. And God is drawing us closer to himself because we learn even over and over how deadly these things are. Sometimes different sins, but still how deadly they are. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, begin reading at verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who endures trials, because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that he has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, for God is not tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my, dear, my dearly loved brothers. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With him there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. By his own choice, he gave us new birth by the message of truth so that we would be the first fruits of his, cre of his creation. Beloved, whether the sin is personal and private, it hasn't burst forth yet. God may hide himself from you to teach you before it ever even burst out into active sin to train you and teach you in righteousness. Maybe he allows the sin to come forth in scandal. As he did with David. He allowed David to suffer the consequences of his own lusts. The consequences of David's adultery never left his house, ever. Was David forgiven? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Is David going to be in heaven? Yes, he is. Why? Well, because God is most gracious. He's most wise, he's most righteous. And he's most gracious. But David carried the consequences of his actions, his sins, his lusts, till the day he took his last breath. And he witnessed it. Absalom, who sought his throne, who sought to kill him, who had turned the people against his own father was a product 
of David's adultery. Brothers and sisters, listen. God is most wise. He knows what you need. And he knows how to bring about in your life righteousness, personal holiness. He knows how to cultivate it. He knows how to draw it from you. And he is most righteous. And what does he mean by righteous? God always does the right thing. God always does the right thing. Now, that's important when you're undergoing these things because you're thinking, wait a minute, what did James tell us? When you're being tempted, don't blame who? God. God is most righteous, meaning God always does the right thing. God cannot do the wrong thing. God cannot do you wrong. God cannot do you wrong. He can give you what you deserve, but he will never mistreat you. God never mistreats the wicked. The wicked earn their reward just as the righteous will earn their reward in Christ. A reward that's purchased for them by Christ. So you have the most wise, you have the most righteous, and then you have the most gracious. What's graciousness? Graciousness is you, not, you really don't get the full brunt of what you deserve. And isn't that, the, isn't that the reality of most of our situations? We don't get what we deserve. God always mitigates his chastisement with grace when it comes to his children. Always. It, it, listen, it, how does a man discipline his children? Can a parent be frustrated? Yes. Can they even be somewhat angry? Yes, I've told you a thousand times. Kind of angry. But what parent doesn't mitigate their chastisement, their discipline of their child with grace? And how much more so God? Now, I'm not going to just, you know, talk about these things. I'm going to end it with just talking about one other biblical personality that we may be able to relate to. And that's Joseph. I don't think at the end of David's life, David would ever say, I don't deserve any of this. I think David would recognize I deserve way more than what I'm getting. And so, beloved, when we think about where God is, when we think about his absence in our personal experience, if you will, because God is always everywhere. And he's never not everywhere, but there is this distance that comes to the believer. Beloved, we have to remind ourselves, number one, of who God is, most wise, most righteous, most gracious. We have to also understand that God does all things well in all of these things, and yet he's orchestrating and he's working my life out to my best. Even though I don't agree or even though I don't see it, even though I can't comprehend it. 
I trust God. He's most wise. He's most righteous. He's most gracious. We keep those things ever before us. And that we think about someone even like Joseph. Genesis 45 and verse 5 says, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Now I want you to think about this as Joseph speaking to his brothers. His brothers hated him. All but one wanted him dead, right? The only the older one that said, look, let's don't kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. And they did that. And, and, and Joseph had a hard life. Joseph spent a good portion of his his years, you know, in jail, falsely accused, a rapist. Lock him up, throw away the key. And so in addressing his brothers, he says, listen, don't be angry with yourselves. I'm sure they were astonished. They were shocked. They were afraid. Oh no, here's the one that we mistreated. He has authority. He's certainly going to kill us. They did talk about that. You go back and read the Genesis account. He says, because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve your life. Now that's wisdom. Joseph tells his brothers who acted maliciously against him that God used their hatred for him to send Joseph ahead of them to preserve the church, the life of God's covenant people. Let that sink in. Because we're not talking about a month. We're not talking about a year. We're talking about years where your life has changed Genesis 50 and verse 20, as for you, he's talking to his brothers again, you meant evil against me. You wanted to kill me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people. One man suffered at the hands of malicious brothers so that many could be saved. That's God's wisdom. Did Joseph, was Joseph innocent? Well, he was, was he innocent of his brother's hatred? Mm, Probably not. He did have the coat of many colors and I'm sure he flaunted it. I'm sure as the younger brother, he was like, look at me. You have to work in the fields. (laughs) I don't. I mean, we do, siblings do that. I remember when my brother and I would would get whoopings. We didn't get, you know, that. You know what a whooping is? <laughs> a whooping is something you don't want. But my brother learned to just take a few licks and act like he's dying, and my father would stop. I wanted to. I wanted to teach my father, my daddy, how tough I was. So I was determined that he is no way he's going to make me cry. And he would keep going (laughs) until I what? Until I broke. And then I can't, I just remember these moments that when he walked out of the room, 
my brother would laugh and go, you are so dumb. If you would just act like it was killing you, he'd stop. And that just made me hate him. And I'll use that word lightly, but it made me want to get at him. Siblings do that. That's my point. Was Joseph innocent? I, no, he wasn't innocent. Did he deserve what he got? No, he didn't deserve what he got. But God used it all so that many would be preserved. Amen? So when you ask God, where are you? Why are you so far away? I want you to think about his providence. I want you to consider what he's doing in your life, what he's doing in your heart, what he's doing with the people around you that you're connected to, how, how one thing affects another. And remember, God is most wise, he is most righteous, and he is most gracious. Let's pray. Father, we do love you, and we are thankful for these messages. We're thankful for these verses that teach us even the best of saints, the strongest of saints, Lord, can have time of doubt, can have time where, Lord, we ponder and consider your presence. Where are you? Lord, forgive us when we do so and remind us when it does happen, Lord, that you're with us, that your promises, Lord, as we look, we'll look at those promises in the future weeks. But, but Lord, that we are reminded that you are at work glorifying yourself, but also building and edifying and protecting and, Lord, preserving the body of Christ. And so, Lord, forgive us where we are in doubt. Forgive us, Lord, where we, where we fall into some despair and raise us up through, our, through sound theology, biblical truth. Lord, your spirit working that truth in us. And, Lord, among other things, comfort us. May your word be a true comfort to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.